my cat is also watching me, and he's not going to have Was the cat. Um, for those of you that know who, who he's named after, that should come as no surprise at Forged Plowshares. And should um, there be cursing in the background? <laughs> yeah, if you can, if you could translate feline cursing, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, we're, uh, I, I think that what we're doing is kind of continuing our conversation that we, uh, that Paul and I had recently. There's lots of conversation going on at, at Plowshares. Um, but, uh, you know, we ended our last conversation on mystery um, by uh, sort of saying that uh, what was what we end up calling into question was how the how uh, a peaceful Christian faith interacts with the powers. Um, it's a very important topic right now, as a lot of Christians are trying to figure out how to uh, understand and react to the political climate uh in our country, in the U.S. right now, it's not a pretty climate. Um, but Paul, you you preached a sermon recently, and you and I haven't gotten a chance to listen to the next one on Romans thirteen. But your 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 sermon on Romans thirteen, I thought, was just fantastic. Um, and and I was wondering maybe that's, that's why a, I like you so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, and I was hoping that maybe we could kind of start there, and and let's talk a little bit about. Um, what you did with Romans 13, and uh, especially in the, to quote the, the great Hauerwas, not my cat Hauerwas, but the great Hauerwas, uh, that, uh, you know, a lot of people like to read Romans 13, but they seldom read Romans 12 first. Uh, yeah, well, what I, is the Romans 13 passage, and then talk about it? Well, the, 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 what I was doing, I actually, the, the one that you've not heard is on 13. I was actually uh, doing chapter 12, and then, looking forward to 13, and of course what's coming up in 13 is the passage that we're to be subservient to the state, and the issue there, you know, what what does that mean, and so my point was, you have to take it in the context of 12, which is saying, you know, that, that be not conformed uh, to the world, that be transformed, and then 12, uh, the way that I'm reading it, is how to do that so that by the time we get to 13, he's already put into place the central idea that uh, we're to resist the, the temptation to be conformed or shaped by this world. And I think that sets up then what he's doing in 13. And you, of course, you know, you even, even you can't take 12 and 13 in isolation. Mm-hmm. from other places in scripture that or or even the circumstance that we know about that this state that Paul is saying you know that we're uh to be subservient to or uh is the very state that killed Jesus it's going to murder Paul it's going to murder the the, the apostles and it's going to carry out then a persecution that's uh, going to, to wipe out the, the leadership of the early church. And Paul's not unaware of that. In other words, he's not saying that we're to blindly obey uh, the powers that be. And so there is a, a, a kind of what Stan, or, uh, John Howard Yoder referred to as you know a revolutionary subordination, a radical subordination. 
that uh, it is the same sort of subordination, you know, a kind of not one person over another. But in the Christian community, we do identity differently. And there is this mutual subordination in which slaves and masters, male and female, men and women, those, those usual roles that are given to us in culture, uh, they no longer exist, that there is not the uh, idea of an oppressed class and a group of oppressors. And, of course, that has immediate effects in the uh somebody like Onesimus is, is going to be treated on an equal basis, that women are going to be treated very differently. Uh, even in Romans, you know, we just did the thing with Junia, uh, that women are, are taking leadership roles uh, in a way that they had, had never done before. And so when you put it in that context, that it, there are two, I think, parameters that we can work with. First of all, uh, the idea that we do not do violent revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, our tendency, in other words, I think what has happened in the history of the world is there is one government and another, you know, for whatever reason, comes along and... Uh, kills off leaders, and Christians could participate in that and have in some instances, but that's not what we're about. We're not into violent revolution, Uh, but nor are we into some sort of blind obedience, and that's clear from Jesus and Paul and uh, that uh, they're not going to bow their knee to Caesar, they're not going to to submit in the sense of obedience. So I think we need to make the difference, the distinction between submission and obedience. But I'm doing all the talking here, jumping there. Well, you know, um, the I, I, I've seen you know so much of my uh, where my my mind is on this right now is dependent on these on on the conversations i keep having with folks and um i'm hearing uh, uh people use the passage in romans 13 of course what we're talking about is this very um it's often referred to in, in our culture um paul sort of comes out and talks about um, um submitting to the ruling authorities they don't bear the sword for nothing which um, I don't. I don't interpret as him saying that you know uh, God wants them to bear the sword for this reason. But in other, it really, hey, they don't bear it in vain. In other words, they'll use it. Um, they're not afraid to use it. Um, so uh, I've I've always sort of read that that chapter as if he's talking about um, that we're not a, a people that. Uh, is here to try to overthrow this this leader. We're going to submit. That doesn't mean obey. In our culture, where, and I don't. I keep saying our culture as if it's a new thing, um, but humans, I think, uh, have always had a tendency with the message of Christ to try to make it um, congruent with the power systems of the world. Uh, specifically the the government and and violence and, and I'm with Greg Boyd what and his understanding of 
the the melding that you really can't separate violence from the powers because violence is the means by which the powers enforce uh, right. what and it is for, that they're right. that they're and, doing. And once you've said that, and you get the pervasiveness of violence, and then you talk about a peaceable kingdom. Then you get the idea of the nature in which the church is this resistant alternative community to the violence of the world. Uh, my, my thought with the, the recent political turn in, in trying to find the silver lining, uh, <laughs> that, uh, you know, it looks pretty it, tarnished to me, but, uh, and, and why, you know, it, uh, thinking about the difference between a first century Roman situation and the present day, of course, that the shift that has taken place is the Constantinian shift in which people imagine that they can be, uh, they can have allegiance to the state and allegiance to Christ simultaneously. Now, Stanley Harris pointed, I think it was the Washington Post, or I can't remember what. It that, was. Uh, that, the, that Trump, you know, on the day of his inauguration, uh, had, uh, called for people to give complete allegiance, you know, and said that as people that we can have faith in this country and faith in ourselves, I don't, you know, he's voicing something and perhaps saying it in a way that, uh, is starkly clear, and of course, Harris's point rightly was: uh, this is not uh, this this is not Christianity. It is a religion, but it's it's a it's a different religion. And but I think it, the the silver lining I keep I'm doing more. I haven't gotten to the silver lining is okay. Let's bring this thing out. Let's say here's here's what this alternative religion of nationalism looks like. And here are the tenets of this belief that it will be an oppressive to the foreigners. It's based on exclusion. It's based on wall building. Mm -hmm. You know, if you think of Paul's picture in Ephesians that the wall of hostility is broken down, Paul's entire picture of justification is one that breaks down dividing walls and hostility. But I think if you don't get that, that is counter to every other religion and every culture in this world functions precisely in and through wall building. And so I think that here we have a, a, a guy that is, he's just, he's just spouting, you know, the, the, the religion of America. And I think it's a good thing. Let's get it out there. And okay, if this is the religion that you're following, mm -hmm. uh, let's call that one thing, and let's call uh, the religion of the New Testament that faith. So what I'm hoping will happen, I think we've, you know, with the, it, the similar situation that took place in Nazi Germany, uh, that people imagined that they, and I, I again, I think we can, in part, blame Martin Luther for this. Mm -hmm. The two things, first of all, Luther's anti-Semitism, and the other thing, Luther's notion of justification as a kind of private justification between God and the individual, right. so that there is no social aspect to it. 
And then you get a, a church like that in, in Nazi Germany that, in fact, was the kind of launching pad. In other words, you're, you don't get national socialism. You don't get the Third Reich. Apart from Christian uh, cooperation uh, in what at, Hitler, at, Hitler at the did. very least, Christian turning the other, turning the, uh, their face away and just watching it, um, it, it even if without the cooperation. Uh, and, and, and uh, I mean, when you consider, you know, in Germany, you're either, a, uh, at that point, you were either a Catholic or a Lutheran, you know, there weren't very many people going around espousing. Mm-hmm. There were some, even in the, in the, the top ranks of it. But, you know, what comes out, even in the war crimes, a lot of these guys committing war crimes considered themselves good Lutherans. They never stopped thinking of themselves as good Lutherans. So how did... <clears throat> That, 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 I'm not sure I ever got to the silver lining part. No, you did. Is, I, okay, all right. I think you, you're, if I understand it correctly, the silver lining is, so um, here we've got, um, here we've got somebody saying, um, somebody just coming right out uh, and espousing, this is the American religion. Um, yeah, I mean, he's calling it, I'm sure he thinks of himself as a good Presbyterian, but uh, well, I don't know that he does. But, uh, it's hard. Yeah, it's hard yeah. but whatever, whatever it is, the, it is the, the religion of Norman Vincent Peale, the power of positive thinking, the uh, the idea of, of Christianity as a step, you know, a means of aiding in success. It is the, as you pointed out in your in your blog, that that what we get even in American liberalism is just more health and wealth gospel. It just comes in a lot of different packages. And the and the the good news is that maybe this is a chance for folks to sit back and and maybe see it as in in such stark terms that that Christianity is supposed to be very different from that. That would be my hope that in other words if there is something good that would come out of this, it would be like that good that came out of uh the rise, you know, the, the national socialism, that there became then a confessing church. And what was recognized in the confessing church is that we owe allegiance to the church, uh, and that's our first allegiance. Now, unfortunately, it was such a turmoil and, and politically and, you know, organizationally that the confessing church, I'm afraid, in the end, uh, even in Bonhoeffer's point of view, was not strong enough to offer any kind of real resistance. Or, I mean, I think it did offer an alternative, but but even Bonhoeffer, in a sense, I think in his participation in the uh, attempted assassination of Hitler, had had abandoned the hope of the, the church really making a difference. I uh, I'm, I have a hard time remembering the name of the book. I bought it a couple of years ago. It was really well done. Um, um, I can't even remember the author. That uh, they've questioned uh, Bonhoeffer's um, his participation in the assassination attempt itself. Yeah, yeah, I've seen the I've seen um, the, the book out there, and it's interesting. I, that may be. I don't know. I uh, and I can't remember the direction. The what I'm thinking about though, as you're talking about this, is 
Um, I'm I'm a hundred percent. What you're saying it, it is very much uh, in line with the way I've looked at it. Yes, the church is different than the state, and um, here we see um, the ultimate sort of example of this is the, as the message that's out there right now is as opposite from Christianity as it can be. That said. What I'm running into on two different ways um, is the folks that um, their faith is so internal that uh, on the one hand, they're either saying to me something like, yeah, but that is not something that we're supposed to assume is going to influence public policy. So therefore – um, it doesn't make any sense for us to voice um, uh, 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 outrage or to voice uh, discontent with the powers that would say um, make my Muslim next door neighbors who are incredibly sweet people. Um, my Muslim next door neighbors would have to um, uh, register. Um, so, you know, of course, now the church is supposed to love those people, but, um, you know, it doesn't really make sense for us to criticize the government because we're supposed to be doing something different. On the one hand, I kind of understand that. On the other hand, I don't think so. And then those other voices that are telling me, yeah, I get all that, and that's all very regrettable, but we've got to protect our families from these people. Of course, the assumption there is you can somehow encapsulate who these people are. Part of our problem, I think, may be that um, we have been at war for almost two decades now with an enemy we still have yet to define um, that you can't really point to and say it's those people over there. Mm-hmm. And so we're constantly in this this push to get them defined, and the the way we think is to, you know, have these broad categories, must be Muslims, mm-hmm. uh, must be people from Yemen uh, or something like that. You know, I know how I'm responding to people who are saying, yes, but um, the message of Jesus wasn't political, so therefore um, us criticizing this policy and this administration is not a healthy or good thing. Um, do you have a, and I'm afraid you're going to say, Hey, they're, they're exactly right. But, um, <laughs> I, I think you might not, but go ahead. Yeah. Well, I, I think, I think that, uh, several, several things as you were talking there that having spent 20 years in Japan and every sentence that comes out of somebody's mouth in Japan begins, you know, what test tachi that we Japanese, and so I think uh, coming back to the state, the, the states, and going out to churches, and people here say the same thing. We, and so mm-hmm. I think step one is okay. Let's let's Who's let's get we? rid of that language. Who's the we? Yeah, I'm not the we. You know, I'm not the. I don't count myself a part of this we. Now, at least the we that is uh, the uh, we Americans, because the we that I would make myself part of is we the church. Once you say that, mm-hmm. that is that my uh, identity is tied up uh, with Christ and the body of Christ in a real first order sort of way. So that 
that is constitutive then of a cosmopolitan, you know, culture that is not defined by race or nation state or border. Once you, once you have that in place and you begin to really practice that in which the church does not, you know, we don't have borders. We don't put up, uh, uh, the, the, uh, we don't turn people away or refuse people, but the church is precisely, uh, uh, open borders, no passports, uh, you know, that we're all aliens and strangers though in turn uh in terms of this world now that's the so that i think you got to get that in place now having said that and uh the church the sermon the couple sermons i've done on romans 13 one of my elders there he pointed out to me he said he said i agree with what what you're saying and he's on the uh, rural electrification board which that sounds rather minor and low level, but you would be surprised how politicized the rural electrification board is. That, uh, that it is, you know, it is a, a hotly contested. And, and so I think that as Christians, there will be levels in which we participate and of necessity. We can't check out. You know, even if you're an Amish driving your horse down the road, you're still on the road. <laughs> and, you know, um, so that at some level, yeah, we, we participate in this thing. And I think it's precisely through our being, though, a, an alternative people that we, as we participate, uh, offer a resistant counter voice. Mm-hmm. That I that I think we may we might argue you know over to the degree I personally don't think we could we should break into nuclear facilities and take hammers and break open the bombs mm-hmm. uh, even though that in fact was the original plowshares that's what they were doing right I don't see that as the the business of the church but should we protest outside nuclear facilities or should we protest the death penalty should we uh, offer a voice yeah i think we could and then we could discuss uh how we do that maybe how how we right. offer an alternative the language of alternative i, I it it's one that is kind of uh, i'm always sort of falling back on and that's kind of the direction my my responses have gone in talking to people about this is that um, uh, you know, uh, yes, Jesus, um, Jesus eschewed the kind of power structures that, um, I mean, the, you know, the temptations, the, the, the temptation narrative after his baptism in Matthew, when he goes out to the desert, there's three temptations. Are you going to use your power to create bread for yourself when you're hungry? Well, a Jesus that does that is not a Jesus who's going to endure a cross. Um, are you going to, um, are you going to throw yourself off the temple, make some grand uh, show, and and you know show yourself up like Superman? Um, you know, Jesus who's willing to do that is not Jesus that ends up on the cross. And for that matter, uh, that other temptation uh, here's all the kingdoms of the world. Um, you can have all this power; it's all yours. But I always thought it was interesting that uh, the devil in that story equates. 
uh, political power with Satan worship. Um, that um, and he, he yes he does he does reject that, and yet this is the same Jesus who said the greatest prophet in the in history is the guy that uh, got arrested for standing outside Herod's palace and and shouting uh, mm-hmm. about the the immorality that was going on, mm-hmm. um, and and that this is wrong. Um, I think um, that if you consider. I, I told somebody today that, you know, um, that we are an alternative kingdom uh, does not mean that we are an irrelevant kingdom politically, uh-huh. but we are an alternative kingdom in exactly the way that we offer an alternative along with a critique that, that what is, what that world does is evil. And um, that there's, or at least there, there are evil things that are happening. And to simply, uh, to simply turn uh, away um, and to not engage uh, with the kind of oppression that uh, that kingdom is always on the verge of, of breaking into, um, the kingdom of the world, that is, um, is to is to say, well, I don't really have, you know, our our kingdom has really nothing to do with right. what's going on in this world. We're just here to try to help people go to heaven. Um, that's, I, to me, that's very far from the gospel. I mean, um, yeah, that, it, and that's that's the gospel. That's the Christianity that I think that is responsible for. I mean, it is a Constantinian Christianity, that, and even more Constantinian by the time you get to the Protestant Reformation. In a sense, I think that Lutheran, Calvin, uh, Reformed Christianity, it, it fits a nationalistic mold even, even more so than the original Constantinianism is, because religion becomes a privatized sphere. The, then you give your body over to the service of the powers that be, and the two, you know the two things are in some way completely separated. So well, if you think about story. Luther, Luther's, I mean, <laughs> Luther appealed to the state to fight the church. <laughs> I mean, that yeah, was his yeah, yeah. that was his thing. Uh, that was how he kept from getting killed by the church. And I'm not saying I had done anything different. I mean, I hope I would have. Um, I think you know Luther's complaint about uh, the church at the time was was very. Uh, I mean, you gotta you gotta give him credit for his conviction and his willingness to stand up and speak. But in the end, he turned to the state to avoid mm-hmm. the cross. I've been. I was just reading Henry Dowling, uh, who goes through. You you mentioned this, the temptations, you know, and does a very interesting. Dowlin is an interesting. Yep. person himself in that he goes from teaching at where was he Notre Dame Harvard and then goes to a community of large, those, the, the yeah, large, large community in which you know people are are uh, challenged mentally and and his point is and totally unimpressed with him mm-hmm. <laughs> and because everything he did was in a realm that well they, they don't care about that they don't read books and yeah. So, so he he found himself, uh, you know, uh, challenged himself in a in an interesting way. But he he talks about the temptation of of Jesus there. That um, 
the the temptation to turn the, the stones into bread, you know, the temptation to be relevant to uh, to meet an immediate uh, you know uh, need for popularity or, or whatever. And he goes through each of the the temptations as a uh, a, a real world picture of what we all face. Um, in the in the in the picture of the the you know the powers that be in the temptations, notice there that Satan says to Jesus, "I can you know make you ruler of this world," and Jesus doesn't challenge him yeah. on that. He doesn't say, no, you can't do that because they don't belong to you. He's, he, uh, he refuses to bow down. So two things are at play in, I think, throughout Scripture. One is that the kingdoms of this world are described by John, you know, the kingdoms of darkness, uh, the kingdom of, under the ruler of the prince of this world, mm-hmm. by Paul, that the, he, he just out. And now it says it in Corinthians, Ephesians, that the devil's the ruler of this world. It's a thematic picture. And I don't know that, you know, I think what Christians often get the idea of in a Constantinian Christianity is that, well, that's no longer the case because now we have good, you know, Christian nations. But I think the point that we originally made, once you, once you get the idea that no, there's only one peaceable kingdom. Nation states do not and are not capable of doing uh, kingdom work on the basis of peaceableness. Mm-hmm. Now, I think there may be degrees, and this is the, the role the church can play. The witness that we play is to, to say, no, the necessity of violence is not a logic that needs to rule. That there is, there are all alternative reasons, alternative necessities. You know, this was Kant. Kant said that anywhere that reason, any nation in which reason rules, war will be a necessity. It's an interesting hmm. idea that is exactly right, except for the idea that maybe there's an alternative reason uh, in which an agonistic, violent struggle is not determinative of the culture. It's not an originary, as Christians, we don't believe in an originary violence. We believe in an originary peace, and that makes all the difference. When I was was preaching to this little church in, in Georgia, several, I had just gotten there. I think I was there for about a year, and, um, I was preaching, um, I don't remember what I was preaching at the time, but I was, um, my whole worldview was changing. Um, I was, um, I was being confronted with the gospel in a way that I hadn't yet. Um, it's largely your fault, uh, but it's also, um, (laughs) it's also, uh, the fault of some, some important books that I was reading. And also, um, I think, um, the Holy Spirit working on me through Scripture. Um, I'm, I'm going to credit that largely. Um, and and I, maybe, maybe as I don't mean to interrupt here, but mm-hmm. as we're describing this, I think that that you and I and and that that uh, we've all gone through a kind of passage 
in which we may be seeming to condemn, you know, but, but I never want to appear that way because, no, I, I would be condemning my own earlier yes. self. I've had some folks who, I, you know, I, I'm in conversations where I, I'm trying to, I'm, try, I'm presenting something about the gospel or the way the gospel um, has caused me to think about a, an issue or a, a guns or violence or um, uh, the, these political, this, this dark political turn we've seen. And I've had people say, this is so judgmental. You make me feel like you think I'm going to hell. And I don't use that language. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I, it, I'm stunned by it. I just, um, I don't know. I really can't figure that out. It was funny. Uh, there was a church that, it was, when I was preaching there, this church that uh, was, um, uh, it was a rural church that was closing its doors. And they had some, uh, money they wanted to donate to another church and um, I was always the kind of person that thought oh yeah boy some money would be good but I wasn't the kind of person that could schmooze uh, I was never good at it one of their leaders came to, to talk to me and he had heard some of my sermons on the internet and he was talking to me about that possibility of that they might uh, you know just make a gift to our church but he looked at me and he said you know I'm a little worried about your preaching. Um, and I thought, well, <laughs> that, there, there goes that. <laughs> but he, uh, he said to me, um, you know, it seems like you're always, what you're saying is so different. He said, have you considered that, uh, you know, how would you like it if, if a pilot, um, you were on a plane and a pilot said, well, this time we're not going to land on the wheels. We're going to land upside down because we think that that's the better way to do it. And, of course, what he was implying was that this, the what, this view of the gospel that I, was, that I was proclaiming was an upside down one and was different and wasn't good because of that. And I just looked at him and said, well, what if we actually found out that all this time we've actually been landing the plane upside down and that there were wheels on the other side and we should have been landing on the wheels the whole time. And you still didn't get that money. No, he, uh, he decided that there were other more deserving congregations. Yeah, yeah. We puttered along as we always did. But um, the you know, what's at the heart here is, again, it always ends up coming back to what it is you think that this whole thing's about. Um, and, uh, you know, if we think that the kingdom is is um, is about presenting a, an alternative to the power structures of the world, the power systems, mm-hmm. the powers, which is what I think the New Testament just calls it, um, with something very different, uh, I saw a wonderful. Uh, it, it was a. It was a, a kind of a image that's been floating around social media, and it's on my Facebook wall somewhere down the list of horribly dark articles. Uh, <laughs> I just, I'm obsessed. But the um, there's an image, and it shows Jesus. Uh, it's, it looks like that sort of uh, ancient Catholic iconography. Jesus. Um, with nail holes in his hands, and he's standing behind a barbed wire fence. Mm-hmm. And he is the outsider. And the, mm-hmm. the statement underneath is, you know, Jesus identifies with the oppressed. 
And I had a good friend even that still had a hard time. Well, are you telling me that Jesus loves the oppressed more than the oppressor? Well, no. But I think Jesus tries to save those who have the power by being powerless. And that uh, by being powerless and calling them to also be powerless, to give up power. Giving up power is what we think salvation actually is. And um, I think that if things continue the way they seem to be, um, we may really have those kinds of opportunities very soon um, in, in some very significant ways. Um, and and my, my thinking about, about saying what I see, I'm always hoping that there are Christians who at some point are thinking, wait a minute, I can't feel good about this. I can't feel good about the the darkness that I'm seeing and the hatred that I'm seeing. Um, I can't support it. And to me, that's if if we could just get Christians not to support <laughs> hatred. Yeah, oppression and hatred. Uh, yeah, and that's the thing that it's not that Jesus, out of fear. Yes, out of fear. Yes, that. Uh, it's not that Jesus uh, doesn't love the oppressed and the oppressor, but he does not love oppression. Uh, and that's the, the, the oppression is ultimately described then as a force that is, uh, it takes over human beings, that humanity is drained out of people ultimately. So that Paul can say, it's no longer I that do it, but it's sin that lives within me. I think that some people have turned themselves over to the to oppression as you know who they are to such a degree that and we can all do this that we can drain the humanity completely out of ourselves uh, and so what Christ is doing is not rescuing a particular class of people. Right. But he's, he's rescuing all of us from these systems, you know, in which the, the system of uh, a kind of oppressive uh, identity is functioning in nationalism as a, a theology that you're going to be, people are imagining that, I think they're confusing you know, this with, you know, the very notions of freedom, the very notions of what, salvation is uh it's it's pretty clear that freedom is not the sort of thing that comes through power of nuclear weapons or through the power of armies and you know that's not christian freedom and so if your identity in christ is one that is ultimately dependent upon the powers of state i would suggest that perhaps that's not christianity that's just out and out nationalism. That's an easy thing to, to recognize, that we put ourselves in the hands of God. And that is a dangerous sort of security, you know, because God doesn't secure us in the way or by the means that, that we would, you know, that he calls, the, he calls us to take up crosses, an odd sort of security to begin with. It's a security that it that requires uh, the kind of faith that I think Jesus goes to the cross with, which is that 
on the other side of this is a um, is a redemption and a, a vindication and a resurrection um, that you don't um, what one of the the lines I keep running into and I had somebody very passionately pushing this on me this week um, is but don't you think we ought to want to stop um, don't you think we should be wanting to stop radical Islam? Well, I, of course, I'm not for beheadings, um, but I don't believe that um, we're going. I mean, we've been. Uh, we here I am. Uh, people ha- have uh, the Roman Catholic Church in the Dark Ages. They call it the Dark Ages for a reason. Um, the war uh, between Catholics and Islam uh, never went terribly well. And if you would think that at some point after several hundred years of fighting, uh, the, the, the fighting would have eventually stopped the uh, evil people. I used to say, you, you cannot kill enough evil people to stop evil because evil is kind of hanging around. In um, <laughs> the very mode of imagining that you can stamp out evil through right. violence is evil. And that's right. what gives rise to one you know, wave of, of, of evil after another. I mean, when you think about it, uh, the rise of, of uh, the Third Reich had much to do with, um, res- I mean, what I think Germany after World War I is, I mean, they're just, it, it was a terrible place to be. I mean, it, right. uh, financially, uh, uh, people are suffering, they're starving. And so, you know, that's, a, that's bad, that's horrible, and there's innocent people that really are suffering. And, and so uh, to respond, you know, you do this with great violence, and, of course, it gets out of control very quickly. You find an enemy and you kill them. Um, and it just and seems say- to me that's what we're, we're still always wrestling with. And that's my would be my point. We can all sort of see it in the case of you know uh, uh, distant future or, or distant past things like Islam and uh, the Crusades or or even with Germany in more recent times. But what what my suggestion would be is that all nation states, all in fact, I think just people, uh, the way that they get organized is through violence and war. They're always organized over and against another tribe, another nation. Right. Even that most, you know, uh, holy of, of revolutions, the American Revolution, uh, well, actually, it was, it was it, the American Constitution is a declaration of war against Great Britain. Um, you know, that, that there is no nation state that uh, comes about Outside of the church, that is not a product of violence. So the church, by its very nature, is one founded upon civil disobedience. Let me explain. You know that Jesus. If you take Romans thirteen as a kind of blind obedience, wait a minute. Jesus was commanded by the powers to be that be go into the grave and don't come out. And they even put a Roman seal on the tomb. When Jesus rises from the dead, he breaks that Roman seal in the ultimate act of civil disobedience. 
to begin this countercultural understanding of uh, this alternative community that is not one built upon uh, you know a kind of blind obedience or not speaking out. No, the whole thing is one of uh, a counter, a civic disobedience, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the whole function of the church. So I think, you know, yeah, we, we the, even in that passage, you know, in, in Romans, that in 13, clearly there is the picture, pay taxes to whom taxes are due, you know. But in that, in the role that's laid out, Obviously, there's no place for Christians uh, in the first century to take up arms and and you know be on the side of uh, the the government that's collecting taxes, that's creating soldiers. Uh, I think there are other passages we can go to, and clearly the history of the church is one of you know uh, uh, pacifism in, uh, in in the early church that ends abruptly, I think, in a Constantinian, the Constantinian shift. So the, the, our very existence is a threat to empire if we do this thing right. right. But if we accommodate ourselves to empire, right. we've made ourselves useless. It means nothing. Now, yeah. The... the uh... I'm just uh, several Pauline passages are uh, I keep coming to mind in this conversation, and and one happens to be you know that you know if you if you read the Romans 13 passage uh, in as uh, being about uh, acquiescence to the uh, to the powers, um, you know these are here that God's put them here, of course. We're very selective about which powers we think that that applies to. You know, didn't apply to Saddam Hussein. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, even take Saddam Hussein. You know, he's an interesting. Uh, that that's a that's always interesting to me because if you if you use that passage, what was Saddam Hussein providing health care? Was he providing, uh, you know, basic human services? Was he? Uh, I think you could make the case that Saddam Hussein uh, was, in fact, I, I think he was doing a lot better than Nero in terms of, uh, you know, not going isn't, beyond. Isn't saying a lot. But saying, saying practically nothing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, but the, the point is that if you're going to kill off a Saddam Hussein, don't imagine that you're doing it in the name of Christ. Right, Even and don't though, and don't imagine that that on the one hand you can say Romans thirteen does the way the way we're not reading it um, doesn't apply there, but it does apply to our regime, right? right. Our our Caesar, um, you know. So it's got to be read differently, you know. And so the the tension there. Or the the irony there of saying, yeah, Paul's talking about uh, you must obey and and go along with with Caesar and and do what he wants, but at the same time, uh, and I, the the passage is leaving me at the moment. The uh, at the same time, saying uh, that Jesus on the cross has disarmed the powers; they have no power over us. In that 
we're ready to to die. Um, they, yeah, I mean, if if everybody think about it, if everybody in the country says no, we're not going along with this horrible thing, the the administration is powerless. I mean, there's nothing they can do. So, mm-hmm. I, I, we'd rather die than commit evil uh, against this child. Or, you know, right. you've made them powerless. Um, this, I think, also brings Ephesians two uh, into, uh, or Ephesians uh, two and three into uh, into the the conversation when you know Paul is saying, you know, formerly you were uh, strangers and aliens, you were outside. Now you've been made citizens. You've been made. You've been made part of the family. Um, you know, Paul. The, the notion that that we're an alternative kingdom, an alternative family, an alternative culture to the world. I don't think that the language of kingdom, and this is nothing new. I'm not. I mean, I'm repeating the words of much more important people. But I, I shouldn't say it that way. Much more uh, uh, <laughs> interesting people, maybe. Um, that <laughs> I don't want to use those power words myself. But um, the language of kingdom, the fact that Jesus called it a kingdom, and he was a king. And the word gospel, which, mm-hmm. you know, had so much uh, political mm-hmm. uh, uh, weight behind it itself, that's not accidental. I mean, mm-hmm. that was there. That was really revolutionary stuff. You know, I, if we walked around saying, no, America's not my nation. The church is my nation, um, and Jesus is my leader. Um, that's uh, – you know that really is a very. Um, I think it was Shane Shane Claiborne had a book some years ago called Jesus for President, and he he pr- proposed a very different kind of of nation state. Um, and I think one of my favorite chapters was the Amish for Homeland Security. Um, it was, uh, you know, I mean, it's a totally different idea. Yeah, the uh, I'm thinking as you're describing this that uh, Shusaku Endo's movie we just saw it the other night, Silence, um, which you know in Japan when uh, early Christians started saying Jesus is Lord, well that had immediate political ramifications because the shogun thought he was Lord, mm-hmm. and they took it as a challenge then and. And, of course, the sad part of this is that it becomes one of the worst persecutions. And as far as I know, I th- you know, we, we think there may have been tens of thousands of people killed in uh, Tokugawa uh, era in Japan. Uh, but, but clearly, if you, if you get the idea that uh, the church has, when you say Jesus is Lord, that is a political statement mm-hmm. uh, that uh, necessarily is a challenge to any state or people that would demand your absolute allegiance. Yeah. Uh, and so when, when uh, states do that, you know, and, and the other thing I was the, the, the Romans 13, I guess we can, we could, the, the two wrong ways of identifying, you know, reading it 
blind obedience or to say, well, yeah, he's talking about, uh, you know, good states and that we obey those, but we don't obey the bad ones as if we're going to do violent revolution uh, in unjust state. Remember, he, it, this is wrong. Yeah, it was a bad and one. It was a bad one, and I don't know that it gets much worse. So the the if you read it in that way, I think it does give us a pathway forward. Ironically, this most difficult of passages gives us a, a means of negotiating this thing, but we can't negotiate it as long as we're operating under a, a Constantinian sort of theology or a a kind of privatized religion that is already just co-opted by uh, the powers that be. Yeah, it was. Uh, it occurred to me when you were talking about the word "lord" that the nation state has benefited greatly by our by that the separation of vocabulary there, because in our language, um, you know, Jesus can be Lord all he wants, but that's the president. Yeah, and. Um, <laughs> You know, you know, whoever happens to be the president and whoever you like as president. Because um, those two are, are not intention. You know, you can have a Lord and a president. Well, when they were calling Jesus Lord, um, there was, everybody knew there's only one Lord. Now, whoever you thought he was, to the Jews, to call Jesus Lord is to refer to him as Yahweh. Um, I, uh, to the Romans, to call Jesus as Lord is to put him over Caesar. Um and, uh, you know, I think that um, I, I support uh, – I, I'm trying to remember who it was that uh, that suggested that we change – That I think it might have been Brian McLaren uh, in one of his books. Um, oh, I can't remember which one it was. But uh, suggested that maybe it's time that we start thinking about this, uh, you know, if we're really going to understand that that Jesus as a radical uh, challenge to the powers, that maybe it's time to start thinking about, about calling him president. I don't like that because I don't like the word president very much. Um, but the uh, I don't want to diminish that. But, you know, he was trying to get at the, the truly um, – revolutionary uh, uh, tone behind the use of the word in the New Testament. Yeah, that's the, uh, the the stuff that has been done with John, you know, that the language that's there uh, is not in, in isolation from uh, what's happening politically, uh, that Caesar Augustus is going to claim to be Prince of Peace. Mm-hmm. He's even going to say, call himself Lord and God. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's going to call himself Savior. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is precisely that language that John is countering uh, in the gospel and I, I think in, in the epistles that, uh, yeah, there's there's a, a two-cosmos system here, but one of those worlds turns out uh, to, to be a, a complete, lie, something that can, can be undone. And so I think that the emptiness of these systems are, are, you know, that's the amazing thing about, in my lifetime, seeing the fall of communism, uh, that, these, these, the, that these nations seem to be imperturbable, that they cannot be moved, and yet they just come onto the stage of history and fade away 
in quick succession because ultimately they're built upon nothing of substance. It's all, uh, you know, it, it, it is a, a, a deceptive notion that they have some sort of ontological ground. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we solved it. Um, well, I think- <laughs> it's amazing what we can do, isn't it? <laughs> I, you know, the... I guess the- the- the bottom line, I, I, um, I, to me, this is this is the way of looking at it that has made the most sense now. Um, that um, you know, you think about what it means to be Christian in terms of an alternative way of looking at the world, and the other one, it becomes sort of it's empty and hollow. There is nothing of substance to it, despite the fact that I think that what we're, you know, we're. <laughs> My wife is is doing some teaching now at a high school here uh, where we live in Georgia. And, um, you know, we are um, recently recently joined a Mennonite church, but I think our theology has been heavily influenced by Anabaptist theology for some time. Um, for us to, you know, the, the tension of standing up and saying the Pledge of Allegiance is too, is too great. We can't bring ourselves to do it um the uh and yet she's kind of in this position now where that's something she's you know kind of faced with so how do you handle that well one of the one of the sweet ladies at our church said uh, she always had she always told one of the kids uh to lead it and if somebody else if they didn't want to participate she didn't make them do it either um but um all that to say you know we've i think we've uh, as a as a culture, you know, we've kind of been bombarded with uh, quite a bit of of propaganda about the state. Mm-hmm. You know, we you say these things as you're growing up, um, such such that what I what ends up happening is when I, uh, somebody said to me uh, the other day, well, I'm I'm all for um, folks, uh, I'm all for refugees coming as long as they come legally. Well, of course, the irony there is if you make being a refugee illegal, then suddenly (laughs) there are no refugees. You know, you're the one that decides what's legal and what's not legal. So, but we still are treating these kinds of things as if they're divine uh, revelations, as if the law of of the state is some kind of divinely. And I think reading Romans 13 the way we have has, uh, has contributed to that. Um, you know, when you read um, Caesar as an extension of God, then what Caesar decrees, I'm remembering that, that Caesar used to use the euangelion, the gospel, as this decree from Caesar. Here's the good news from Caesar today. It was never very good. But um, now you've got, um, when they decree this, it is law and we look up to these you know when people talk about the constitution of the united states i mean it's in with hushed reverence it is a holy document uh for many people and let me uh, let me uh let me run interrupt. An let yeah. me run an experiment on you you're you're i was monologuing no no so. I, I i was just as you were saying that uh, and and object here if i've if i've gone too far um but my tendency with 
uh, in, in Romans is to see Romans 6, 7, and 8 as, as central. And if, you know, the, the entire argument in Romans is about the nature of the law and that the law then is itself definitive, not in the sense that uh, it is the, the uh, you know, that it's the law that is determinative, but in the sense that our uh, uh, skewing of the law, our perversion of the law, has resulted in an alternative law, the law that Paul calls the law of sin and death. And under this law, uh, it functions individually, I think, in the same way that it does corporately. That there is this inherent antagonism within the self that Paul's describing in chapter 7, and that he's describing corporately in chapters 9 to 11. So that the law is a universal, absolute, so uh, that even the state then is subject to the law of sin and death in giving itself over uh, to violence. That is, that that, uh, it it has to function uh, according to this thing. So that taking your, you mentioned the Constitution, I always thought the Constitution is founded, it begins with a lie. We, the people. They ain't no people, because you've got to constitute the people to have a Constitution, uh, but they's doing what people always do, and that is they project backward and imagine a people that could constitute themselves. So... Th- I think the Constitution is the perfect example of the law of sin and death, that what we would always do is be self-constituting. We would constitute ourselves a people. We would constitute ourselves as an I, you know, in Romans 7, and there's the lie. And it always just, it always comes back up. Uh, That uh, you can't constitute, uh, before days people to constitute, but that's precisely the the first three lines. Of well, it, and I I don't think you've gone too far. I would oh good. I would never presume. <laughs> I would never presume to school you on how far you are to go. But the <laughs> but you know I the the line. The statement that it the, the very foundational line "We the people" is a lie. Um, I think is supported by the fact that uh, for two centuries, uh, basically the rest of the experiment's been an argument about who we the people are. Well, does that include women? Does that include black people? Does that include uh, Irish? Does that include Catholics? Does that include Muslims? Does that include? Um, and so you're constantly having fight. Uh, human nature to uh, in, to include the other, um, and we're still doing it. I mean, it's still you know uh, who is who is we the people? I for one have um, found it very difficult uh, as a Christian to uh, I, I can't for the life of me uh, you know when we talk about um, who has rights to uh, who has a, a, a right to. Um, freedom or whatever, you know, nebulous thing we're trying to talk about. And, well, but it's American citizens. Well, why should that stop with American citizens if we're Christians? Why should uh, what's good, what God gives all people, life and food and water and 
um, why should that be um, held just to uh, citizens of a certain country? Does he not give it to all people? And if he gives it to all people, and if we believe that he has created all people equal, uh, to borrow that language, uh, of course, that's the Declaration of Independence, I believe, um, then um, uh, I mean, you're. I think you're. You know, ultimately, you're right that we, the people, is a. Um, it begins with an assumption that it can't identify in the first place. And so since you don't have, since you don't have that, you know, it's, uh, you just have, it just creates new, new forms of oppression. In the I think, uh, yeah. I think a lot of people have been quoting, you know, the Sermon on the Mountain. I think that's quite appropriate that in a, in a way I don't, I, I don't mean to, you know, again, I think we all need to check ourselves. We all have to have certain tests of, the authenticity of our Christianity, and those tests are not hard to do upon, to do with yourself. That is, what do you do with the poor? What do you do with the hungry? Uh, you know, the, the, your identification with the oppressed is then the judgment scene. Uh, that is the criteria uh, of an authentic faith, so that we all need to pause and, and, and make these judgments. I, I did the recent First John one, the, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. maybe that one's not up yet, but the idea of these tests of authenticity that John gives, uh, that they're moral. Do you love your neighbor? They're social. Do you, uh, participate in the fellowship? And they're ultimately theological in the, do you acknowledge the lordship of Christ? And, you know, part of that is that, do you say that he's, Come in the flesh. Uh, I think that we can always apply those, and I would I would say that you know especially to people who may. I think that what happens in a kind of uh, Constantinian Christianity is that you find yourself supporting doing evil to certain classes or certain you know people at a distance. Uh, that if you just stop and think, it does not meet that criteria. You cannot oppress the poor. Uh, you cannot then side with the oppressors. Uh, you know, you cannot be involved in systems that are poverty-creating. And we all need to, to continually examine ourselves on that basis. And. Uh, you know, for too long was taught that the Sermon on the Mount is a test of, of faith. It's just a test that, you know, we're not really capable of doing. So thank God that Jesus came and did it for us so that we don't have to. Um, and, <laughs> yeah, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. I was like, what a, what a waste of time that was, you know, if that was the case, why didn't he just, you know. Right. And that's the whole Christianity is that, that he, he died, Jesus died so that we don't have to. He buried yeah. the cross so that we don't have to. Yeah. So that that is the alternative uh, Christianity. Um, again, I I, there, I even as I'm saying this, there's a tension in my own mind. I, I want to I want to call people out of that in a, a kind of non-condemning fashion, but I think at the same time you have to you have to call uh, you know you have to to make a. a clear what an authentic Christianity looks like. And if that sounds damning, 
Uh, well, it, it may, and maybe that's the only alternative we have. I don't know. Tell me I'm wrong there. That there, there has to be a some way of. I think you can do this in a loving fashion, but ultimately, I think that there is a kind of condemnation that that is passed. Uh, I'm too impressed with the prophets to be very much use, um, uh, you know, in trying to figure out how to do that. Um, you know, how was in using colorful language, which I won't repeat here, but uh, has talked about, you know, somehow we got to be able to talk about peace without being self-righteous, you know what. Um, uh, that's true, and and I think he's right. Um, he's also the kind of person that, you know, he's not, he's never been terribly afraid to be very confrontational. Um, and, and I've just been, uh, you know, I, I, I spent a lot of time with the prophets. I've taught classes on the, on the prophets. Um, um, and those were people who had no compunction. Uh, that's probably not fair. Who had no, um, it didn't seem to hesitate to, um, to say when, when the people's faith was idolatry. Um, and, and unfortunately, you know, I think we're, we're so, um, we're, we're so stuck on this very retributive form of Christianity that people have a hard time understanding that, you know, when I, when I say, Hey, this is, this, I don't think is Christianity. Um, that's, doesn't mean I'm saying, well, now you're, see, see, you've got it all wrong. You're in the going to hell club. Um, I don't. I don't see Christianity as being uh, an escape clause from eternal damnation. I, I'm, I see it as an alternative kingdom. Okay. And so when I say uh, this is what I think that alternative kingdom is, and I don't think that's it. It's. It's really. You know. It. it it's red is condemning. It sounds condemning. Mm-hmm. But that's because you assume condemnation. <laughs> well, I don't that's in, true. That's in true. Christ yeah. there is no condemnation. I'm not calling right, right. you condemned. Right, I'm calling right, you right. lost. And and see that's a my I've said this many times. I'm afraid I've said it on a couple of these recordings now, and I'm afraid I don't have. I'm always afraid that I, I don't have much to add. But the um, the word lost. I think is very carefully chosen in the New Testament. Um, I don't think it means, um, you know, that when we say that, uh, you know, I, what is Jesus sees the people coming to him from when he meets the woman at the uh, at the well in Samaria, and it's such a beautiful story. He has this wonderful conversation with her, and then turns and the disciples, you know, they're just. They just want lunch. They have, why are you doing talking to this person? Look, he sees the people. She runs into town, and he just can't believe how short-sighted they are. She runs into town. She brings all these people, and it says that Jesus was overcome with emotion, and he said they were like, the, the passage says, they were like sheep without a shepherd. And, you know, that term lost, in my mind, it means so far from from what God really wants for people. You know, he does love the oppressor. He does love the oppressed. 
they're lost. They need the kingdom. But that is a very different kind of kingdom. And it's going to call, I think, sometimes for people. I think sometimes we're going to have to scream over the din. And sometimes we're going to have to just very silently go to the cross. Um, um, I don't know. Maybe we can scream and go to the cross, too. I don't know if that's an option. But uh, Yeah, I think, what, I think what you're painting is that there is a Christianity that is then seeing the salvation from condemnation that turns out to be a condemning sort of religion, uh, who in my personal experience, not always, not 100%, but the people who believe this religion can be very mean. They've been very mean to us. You know, they've, mm-hmm. they've uh, done everything they can to destroy our livelihood. And, and uh, so that the, their condemnation of what they see as this kingdom Christianity uh, is telling that I think in the same way that on a national level, that people invo- who involve themselves in meanness and oppression, uh, in some way that should cause a light to go off in somewhere and say, wait a minute, this isn't, this isn't what we're about. And I'm, and I'm running into some very good friends who I, I think very highly of who, um, who have left the faith. And I, I, uh, because, because that's what they find, yeah. Because that's what they find, and and in in the in the uh, in the end, they they basically said, if that's what it is, I just I'd rather not do it at all. Right. I'm hoping, and I've taken a lot of of uh, comfort in your in a statement you made in our last conversation, which was um, that sometimes. Atheism is kind of a necessary step. You have to reject the wrong God before you can to let mm-hmm. the right one in. M. M. Scott Peck said it you know, in, a, in an interesting, in a different category He's in, in the uh, counseling. He, he encountered people that he thought the healthiest thing they could do would be to leave the church. I don't know that I would ever recommend that to somebody, but I understood exactly what he meant because uh, there were people's religions. It, it, it is a kind of sickness mm-hmm. uh, that they're not going to be cured of perhaps until they get rid of the notions of God, the notions of the way that Christianity functions, that they so tied their identities to that they are indeed, a, they're, they're lost in, in, in the, the sickest of fashions. And in a, in a sense, their estate is worse than a pagan because they have nothing left to turn to because the Christianity that should have saved them in a real world, lived reality kind of way has been uh, uh, displaced. It's no longer an altar. It's been fun. Yeah, yeah, it has. I was just thinking that, unfortunately, at some point, I've got to